sometimes we're not so smart. Sometimes we need to have our judgment called into question. Sometimes we just don't get it. Sometimes we make mistakes and we make a mess of everything. Let me see if I can give you an example. So earlier this year, um, there was an invasion of Russia into Ukraine. Now, there were ripple effects of that in strange kinds of ways. The place that I want to share with you is up in Canada where they serve this dish. Do you know what this is? This is a sign of what you just sang, the goodness of God. This is called poutine, and it is fries and cheese curds smothered with gravy. Can I have an amen? Well, in Canada, where they serve this dish, because of the French influence of where this thing comes from, it's one of their pride and joys of what they serve in their restaurants. Now, having said that, in Canada, particularly in the Quebec region, they pronounce this differently. They don't call it poutine, they call it poutine. And because of the invasion that was taking place of Russia into Ukraine with the totalitarian leader by the name of Vladimir Putin, people stopped eating poutine that they called Putin because they didn't want to give support to Russia and the Ukraine war. You know those two things have nothing to do with one another, right? And so you can put as much gravy on your french fries and your cheese curds and you want to, and none of that is a kickback to the Russian people. We're just not that smart sometimes. Here's another example. Do you remember that time back in the early parts of the pandemic where we were doing panic buying? <laughs> and this is the beer aisle. Not that any of you would be on the beer aisle, but this is the beer aisle, and all the beer is gone from the shelves except for Corona beer because just in case, does the Corona beer cause the coronavirus? No, it doesn't. That's stupid. The two things don't have anything to do with one another and there are these moments when we are sheep and we make mistakes like this and we need to be confronted. We need to be told those two things do not belong. Well, today what we're going to see from the Bible is a moment when the Apostle Paul walks into the cultural capital of the ancient world and says, I need to call your judgment into question. This is the birthplace of democracy and of philosophy as we know it in Western civilization. And Paul is about to march into the city of Athens and say, you don't understand. And so if you will, will you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17? Because I believe that this confrontation was not just for something that happened thousands of years ago, but it's a holy confrontation that needs to happen today because we just don't get it. Acts chapter 17, we're going to start reading in... Uh, the 16th verse, and while you're turning there, let me remind you that they we're in this series called Quest, where we're exploring the whole story of God. In the, in the first kind of two-thirds of the year, we looked at the Old Testament, then we got into the New Testament, where we looked at the ministry of Jesus, then we looked at the death and resurrection of Jesus, and now we're in this section that we call Mission. This is the explosion and expansion of the early church, where the gospel is on the move. 
And so as we explore how the gospel is on the move, may we understand that it moves in our community in just the same ways today. Acts chapter 17, starting in the 16th verse, this is 51 AD. Paul makes his way down into Athens and it says, while Paul was waiting for them, that is Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace, day by day, those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul marches into Athens and his first impression is one of distress. Because everywhere he goes, he sees that there is temple after temple after temple to all of these gods that are not really gods. And so let me show you what you might find than Paul would have seen thousands of years ago. These are the ruins of the temple of Zeus. And these are next the ruins of the Greek god of really expensive athletic sneakers known as the god of, god of Nike or victory. Here is the view of the Acropolis, which is the temple to Athena. There are temples in Athens to Aphrodite, to Apollo, all kinds of different gods. And so Paul is walking around, and as he is doing so, he sees all of these different temples and idols, and he's filled with distress. Let me ask the question, do you think if the Apostle Paul walked around the city of Atlanta, he would feel any differently today? I don't think he would. I think he would see, particularly as the gospel recedes to the margins of society, that there is, in the midst of that vacuum, the reality that we are all religious. It is only a matter of what or whom you are worshiping. And so we might look at this story and say, yes, that was an ancient pagan culture and they had all these different gods and weren't they so superstitious and backwards back then. And I'm here to tell you, it is not any different today. It's just that your gods and my gods in our society today have very different names. And so I wrote down a list of different gods that I think we are susceptible to today. Power, success, fame, health, politics, wealth, self, security, busyness, romance, sex, social identity, leisure, comfort, adventure, food, and technology. Anybody want to admit that they have a little shrine or a little allegiance to any of those gods? You see, idolatry is not just some backwards thing. It's something that happens all the time. It is the first of the Ten Commandments that you should have no other gods before me. And so anytime that you put something before the living God, anytime you give something weight that cannot bear it, anytime you take a thing, usually a good thing, and you turn it into an ultimate thing, anytime you do that, you and I are participating in the ancient sin that is idolatry. And that idolatry is very active today. And it gives Paul stress. And so as Paul begins to preach against this idolatry, there are two particular schools of thought that are 
going on there, two different groups of people that start to press in on him. They are the Epicureans and the Stoics. We could chase this rabbit for a long time, but the short version of this is that the Epicureans are very pleasure-seeking. They didn't necessarily believe in a god. They were typically atheistic in nature. We tend to think of atheism as relatively new. It is not. It has been going on for a long time. And so these pleasure-seeking history is meaningless people were very much in the school of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And then you had on the other side the Stoics that were very disciplined and very reason-loving. And for them, on the other side, they believed that history was cyclical and kind of what goes around comes around. And each of these different ancient schools of thought started to press in and to push back against Paul as he comes in here. In fact, they assign to him a condescending name. They call him, did you notice this, they called him a babbler? This is a term in Greek that means a seed picker. In other words, so they're imagining some bird that is on the ground and is just picking up one seed after another. And they're calling Paul very lowly and that he is just picking up these thoughts off of the ground. It's a very rude, insulting kind of term. And so let's see what happens next. This is verse 19. And so they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And so you were ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now, one of the misunderstandings that I had for a long time with this story is the Areopagus. I tended to think that this was like the Athenian equivalent of the debate society or the the university, that they were intrigued by Paul's ideas, and they're like, hey, why don't you come give a guest lecture for us? That is not what the Areopagus is. The Areopagus was the supreme court, the high court of the land. One of the things you need to recognize about Paul when you read through the whole book of Acts is that everywhere he goes when he preaches, it causes a great deal of discomfort and civil unrest. There was a bishop in England who once said, everywhere I go, somebody gives me tea. Everywhere the apostle Paul went, there was a riot. Which one of those is the right response to the gospel? And you see... Everywhere Paul went, as he proclaimed Jesus, it really created unrest within that society because of the radical nature of what was being proclaimed and how it undercut their normal economics and way of living and practices and all the different areas of their lives. And so Paul is being brought. He hasn't been there very long. He is being brought to the highest court in the land, and they're like, you need to explain yourself. Now, the Areopagus took place in this location. This is known as Mars Hill. Ares, the god of war, it was for which the court was named, the Areopagus. There's no ruins there, but the location of the Areopagus was on top of that rock, which is right in the shadow. I'm taking this picture walking down from the Acropolis on high. 
And so the Apostle Paul is standing in that area and he's being brought on trial in this moment. And he says, I see that you're super religious. I even found this one particular statue that is an altar to an unknown God. Now it's interesting, we've not found the the altar to the unknown God in archaeology in Athens, but we have actually found the same type of altar called to an unknown God in the city of Pergamum in Turkey. And the phrase that they have there is this one, agnostos theos, agnostic of God. And so what Paul is saying is that they are ignorant, agnostic of the very thing that they are worshiping. And this is going to be really important when we see him double-click on this in a little bit. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all of the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. And so picture this. Paul is standing in the shadow of one of the archaeological, I mean, architectural wonders of the world. And he says this, God does not live in temples made by human hands. One of the remarkable things about the Acropolis, when you look at it, it looks completely flat. Actually, there are no two pieces of the Acropolis that are exactly the same carving. In other words, they created it with a slight bend to it. And so every piece had to be intricately created with a slight bend so that it looked flat from a distance. It truly is one of one of the design engineering marvels of the world. And Paul is in that shadow and he's before the Supreme Court and the gospel and he are on trial. And he's like, hey, you guys know that God doesn't live in a place like that, right? How do you think Paul's doing with his trial right now? He's confronting them. Your judgment needs to be called into question. In fact, the language that he used is that the whole point of this is that you might be able to search and to be able to reach out and to be able to find what you were looking for. But the phrase of reaching out that Paul uses there is a particular term that means to grope or to grasp in the dark. Stayed in a hotel room recently, it was very dark at night, had to get up in the middle of the night, didn't want to wake up Kelly, and I am walking around that hotel room because I don't remember where the walls are or anything are, and I don't want to turn on the lights to wake her up, and I am groping in the dark. And I'm like, this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about we're not supposed to do. Paul is saying you don't have to live that way anymore. Thinking about your unknown God. Because you can know him. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. 
In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands his all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. I want to show you a picture of our ancient replica of the statue of Athena. This one is not super tall, but the one that stood on top of the Acropolis was 36 feet high. And it was made of stone and bronze and silver and gold. And so with that statue up there, which sailors reported that they could see from miles and miles around as the, the sharp Greek sunlight would hit that statue and just shine like a beacon all over the place. The Apostle Paul is saying, it's not about the skill of your craftsmanship. It's about something else. And then he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Okay, hold on a second. Remind me, Athena is the Greek goddess for what? Wisdom. And so you've got the statue to Athena the wisdom, to the birthplace of democracy, to the home of philosophy, who prided themselves in their knowledge and the way that they talked and debated and thought. And the Apostle Paul is like, you guys are idiots. You don't know anything. Do you think his trial is going really well thus far? And then, and then the Apostle Paul drops in the bomb of the resurrection. Now, we have, we have this condescending view today that, you know what? They were all superstitious back then. They all believed in the resurrection. I am here to tell you that if you do even just a little bit of history, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Platonists, all of the major schools of thought in Greek culture and influence, none of them believed in the resurrection from the dead. And in fact, the, the ancient Jewish understanding of the resurrection from the dead didn't anticipate what was being told. They thought that there might be a resurrection one day, but not that one person would come through on the other side like Jesus has to point the way. And so nobody was expecting the resurrection of the dead. So to, in order to help to influence his popularity contest, the Apostle Paul's like, and then there's the resurrection. Boom, drop the mic. And you can imagine that things just blew up. So here's the response. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Women were considered property in the ancient world. They did not have the status of citizenship. They could not appear in court or give testimony. And so the Bible tells us, Luke, as the historian records, that there is a woman who is overhearing this proceeding. Her name is Damaris, and whatever economically she might have had, she was of a particular low status in society in a patriarchal world. And then he also comments 
that someone else by the name of Dionysius responded and believed. Dionysius was a member of the high council and the supreme court. Do you see how the resurrection cuts through? That the gospel cuts through all the different layers of from the lowest of the low to the highest of the highs? And how all of us have an opportunity to be able to respond to it? And I want to put this image up on the screen and to say, in the holy confrontation of maybe your judgment needs to be called into question. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, you have a choice of either cynicism and sneering, wanting to know more, or following. Everybody, look, we are super religious, just as they were back in that day and age. And things are really different between religion and the gospel. Religion is all about what do I need to do to appease reality, God, whatever it is, and how can I do that in order to be able to feel righteous or to feel good or to feel at peace or whatever it is. The gospel turns that upside down and inside out because the gospel is is that you are loved, is that Jesus has done this for you, that he has paved the way by the resurrection of the dead and that he invites you into that eternity and that you and I should not be ignorant of the way that reality actually works, which is, is that God has done this for us. And so you don't have to worry about being religious. And so you and I have this chance, this opportunity to respond where we don't just need to follow the ways of the world and need to have our judgment called into question. We need to see things for who they really are, that there is a king and that this king has come to earth and he has come to give temples, but they are not going to be temples made out of human hands and out of human skill. It is not about the buildings. It is not about the ruins. It is not about the majesty of those things. What is amazing about this is as great as it is architecturally and engineering and all of those things, think about how small this is to what the church is today. Not the church is a building, but the church is a people. Billions of people all around the world because the temple that God is coming to construct is us. That's what God is doing. And it's all rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. The new creation that is dawning in and through him. And so you and I don't have to grope in the dark and try to grasp in the unknowing anymore. For he has revealed himself to us. And so live your life as a temple. Live your life on the top of a hill like an acropolis. Sometimes we just need to be told plainly. Your judgment needs to be called into question. Because the way that we're following all of the idols of today, that's not how it works. And so let us pray. Your representative, O God, marched into a city long ago to confront the people, to call them into question, 
And so will you, like the Apostle Paul, fill us with distress for the state of the city and the world that we live in. Help us to not chase after pleasure or reason, but to chase after you. Because you have first chased us. Help our lives to be temples, God, not constructed by human hands. And help us to seek and to reach out and to be found by you that we don't have to grasp in the dark anymore. And so forgive us for our ignorance, our sneering at the resurrection, our desire to be fascinated by it but unwilling to follow it. And Lord, help us to move from religion into the relationship of what it means to follow you and to you alone. And that that begins with understanding the difference between gospel and all of the other worldviews and religions that say you have to earn it. It begins with the simple prayer, God, you love me. And so in this moment, will you shape us? And will you make this our prayer?